The Motherhood Channel is your trusted source to provide in-depth information from UC San Diego experts focused on pregnancy, childbirth, and the first year of life. Visit uctv.tv slash motherhood for more. Laura, thank you so much for sitting down to talk with us today uh, so we can learn a little bit more about the pelvic floor and how that relates to being pregnant and the postpartum period. Just to kind of start us off, what is the pelvic floor? Tell us about that. The pelvic floor is an intricate uh, sort of lacing of muscles that sort of support the whole bottom part of our trunk. It's the region that the opening of the bladder passes through, the vagina, and the rectum. So the pelvic floor is very important to keep things (laughs) closed when you want it closed and open when you need it open. And how does it relate to pregnancy? Um, Well, obviously, when uh, the pregnancy is at the end, that's usually what the baby passes through, unless you would have a C-section. But also, the pelvic floor supports the growing organs during pregnancy, and there's a lot of change in the pelvic floor as the growing uterus exerts a lot more pressure. Okay. Why do women usually, you know, seek out pelvic floor therapy either during pregnancy and especially postpartum? There's several reasons why. Most of the patients um, who see us in women's pelvic medicine here at UCSD um, come in the later decades of life, usually after menopause. We do see some patients immediately after pregnancy. Sometimes we even see them for consultations before pregnancy. But the issues that most women come to see us for, regardless of where they are in the lifespan or the reproductive process, um, is related to symptoms. If they would have pelvic floor symptoms. Um, Specifically, those symptoms would be incontinence of urine or stool or prolapse, where there's actually skin protruding and bulging out through the opening of the vagina. Now, I know, you know, frequently when I evaluate women for their six-week postpartum visit, there's a lot more symptoms at that time than they may have, you know, further on. At what point would you recommend that a woman get a physical therapy specialist appointment? So anytime there are symptoms, it's important to get evaluated, either by your general OBGYN, your family practice doctor, um, or some patients even self-refer them to see um, a urogynecology clinic. Um, Typically, in the reproductive process, um, the first six weeks after delivery is the most healing, and there's going to be so much change in the body. Um, Especially if a woman is breastfeeding, it really suppresses the hormones um, that can make the vagina feel more normal, like it did before pregnancy. So um, depending on the severity of the symptoms, there's not so much that we do to either operate or do therapy or whatnot until the hormone levels come back up to normal. Um, but if the symptoms are severe enough and bothersome, it's not a problem. Always come in and be checked out. So what, what are some of the things that you can offer a woman if she's having prolapse symptoms you know, and or urinary incontinence symptoms? Um, so whenever a patient comes to see us here at Women's Public Medicine Center, they're always initially evaluated by one of our urogynecologists, which are one of our um, specially trained physicians in urinary fecal incontinence and prolapse. And um, based upon what their symptoms are, what their objectives are, how they feel like they best need to improve their comfort in their life, we offer them an array of options from things that are very conservative, such as pelvic floor physical therapy, 
um, biofeedback training, Kegel exercises, sometimes topical hormones. Um, we can even offer little devices such as pessaries, which are uh, medical devices that hold the vagina up and can help with urinary incontinence. And of course, we also offer them an array of surgical um, options if they need that for their symptoms or that's what they're interested in. For, you know, an average healthy woman in her mid-30s, you know, who's, who is having some prolapse symptoms right after delivery, what's the most common thing that that woman, you know, should consider? Absolutely. Um, it's imperative to be evaluated by someone who can really um, assess the situation and see if this is just straightforward prolapse or there's some underlying medical condition. But the majority of the time, it's just straightforward prolapse, which about 50% of women after a vaginal birth will have some degree of. Um, if the symptoms are bothersome, we do something you know, as simple as physical therapy, um, exercises, and using something like a pessary. Is there anything during pregnancy that a woman can do to, you know, think about protecting her pelvic floor leading up to delivery? Absolutely. Um, of course, the most important thing during pregnancy is to have a healthy, beautiful baby at the end of it all. Um, but definitely during pregnancy for the pelvic floor, it can help to do Kegel exercises, um, to be really aware of what the musculature is, how to properly engage it so that after the traumatic event of childbirth, unfortunately, during the healing process is not such a novel experience. So what would be an example? Um, so a really good way to idealize doing a Kegel, because it's very abstract for someone just to say squeeze down below, um, the muscles of the pelvic floor, they're really um, a very small, thin muscular group that when you contract it properly, it feels like barely nothing. If it feels super strong, you're doing it the wrong way. You're usually contracting your thighs or your butt cheeks or your belly. Those are huge muscle groups. They tell your brain, good job, but it's going to do nothing to help with your pelvic floor health. So um, the best way and what I teach all of my patients when we're trying to do a Kegel is imagine that you're in an elevator surrounded by lots of people and you don't want to pass gas, as silly as that sounds. But just by gently winking your anus, you'll actually recruit the muscles of the pelvic floor best. And it's just repeating that over and over slowly to really keep the muscles engaged properly. And, and so what would you encourage them to do you know, on a daily basis. On a daily example. basis. Yeah. So um, my good rule of thumb is you need to be consciously engaging your pelvic floor about 150 times a day, which wow. can seem like, wow, that's a lot. <laughs> but really laying down, doing it, mm -hmm. sitting up and standing up is very different. Obviously laying down is much easier because you don't have the weight of your gizzards pushing down on it. Um, but sitting up and standing up is definitely important since that's the position that our bodies are in most of the time we're awake. So I always say 15 laying down, 15 sitting, and 15 standing about three times a day, which is basically about 150. And if you think about all the time that we wait, waiting at the red light, waiting at an ATM, waiting for the person in front of you to pay, <laughs> um, just using that time to engage your pelvic floor and be aware of it, you can really squeeze in quite a few in a day. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, I know that it's a highly controversial question. Does the mode of delivery, whether it's cesarean, vaginal, or certainly operative, such as forceps or, or vacuum, um, matter in terms of trauma to the pelvic floor and subsequent recovery? 
It definitely does matter. However, like I said before, the goal is always a healthy mom and baby at the end of a pregnancy and at the end of childbirth. So looking um, at the, the data that's out there, it's very gray of whether or not, um, you know, if one thing happens, is the patient going to have pelvic floor dysfunction or prolapse afterwards? Um, I've been doing this for a long time, and I've seen a lot of women that have had a lot of babies and have no prolapse. On the opposite side of the spectrum, I take care of a lot of women who have never even been pregnant and they have prolapse later in life. So there's no direct, you know, if this happens, then that will happen. Definitely having a vaginal birth increases the chance overall, whether it's a spontaneous vaginal birth or an assisted vaginal birth with forceps or a vacuum. Um, but definitely by having a C-section, you are not preventing the chance of pelvic organ prolapse. Um, like I had stated, I see lots of women across the lifespan that have never even had a pregnancy being treated for pelvic organ prolapse. Significantly, there are some things that we can do to absolutely decrease our chances of pelvic organ prolapse. And that is um, taking the risk factors that we can control out of the picture. Um, one huge risk factor is any chronic condition or any chronic state where a woman is closing her throat and bearing down. It's like what we do when we cough. It's what we do when we grunt or valsalva. So um, for individuals who suffer from chronic constipation, that will definitely increase the lifetime chances of pelvic organ prolapse. Um, for women who have chronic respiratory conditions like COPD, emphysema, chronic cough, that's chronically pushing on the organs and forcing them down on the pelvic floor and causing prolapse, unfortunately. Um, there are some uh, birth defects that a woman can be born with that increases her chances, like spina bifida um, or any sort of neurologic process in the spine that causes like a paralysis um, or something of that nature. So by um, helping with chronic constipation and getting that under control, it's a huge benefit to the woman to preserve that. Um, and also having more weight up above here puts more weight on the pelvic floor down there. So um, being over a BMI of 30 definitely increases a woman's lifetime chance of having prolapse. Gotcha. And is there a genetic component to it as well? It's a huge genetic component. Um, I've had, I had a woman one time that came to see us who had had 19 vaginal births in her lifetime and she had no prolapse, which <laughs> wow. was the most Let's divine that genetic <laughs> disposition ever. Um, and then again, I see lots of women who have never had a vaginal birth or a pregnancy in their lifetime, and they do. So um, genetically, we all have the stretchy tissue in our body that's passed down through our genetics, just like blue eyes and brown eyes and big feet or small feet or whatever. Um, and depending on how stretchy the supportive tissues of your pelvis are, it's how you're going to age and it's how you're going to recover from um, pregnancy and childbirth. Some people have a lot of recoil in their stretchy tissues. Uh, some people don't. And that's just a genetic factor we can't take away. Um, one question I get frequently is if there is an additional risk for women who run or have you know, more high impact activity or exercise. Do you find that that's true? Not at all. Obesity is absolutely the leading cause of pelvic floor dysfunction. So, I mean, in some very isolated, you know, outlier situations, can we say like, oh, this sort of exercise, um, 
promoted to pelvic floor dysfunction. Um, you know, world-class heavyweight champion women that are lifting, you know, three times their body weight kind of thing. Um, but absolutely not. Exercising throughout pregnancy, exercising once you've got to your six-week checkup and everything's, you know, healed and well after your pregnancy, <clears throat> there's no way. No way at all. It's best to stay fit and active and enjoy your life and your new baby. <laughs> so... For, let's, if we go back to that, you know, mid-30s-year-old woman mm -hmm. who's healthy but at six weeks is having prolapse symptoms um, and they come to you and you initiate pelvic floor mm -hmm. therapy, what would the course of that look like? You know, over what period of time would you expect for her symptoms to improve? Mm -hmm. um, what's a reasonable expectation for her long term? So really within the first year after having a baby, the body is going to go through a lot of reparative changes. Those reparative changes are going to go a little bit slower if the mom's breastfeeding because of the hormone levels that stay pretty low. Um, and so definitely we wouldn't rush into anything very, you know, we wouldn't rush into surgery or anything of that nature until the mom has weaned the baby and then plus three months for sure. And that gives enough time for the hormone levels to sort of get straightened out for the connective tissues of the pelvis to really show what the full degree of issues are going to be. Um, <clears throat> but usually when I have a mom come in after six weeks postpartum and she has some bothersome prolapse or incontinence, we try pessaries, we try exercises, and we really take it every couple months or so to see how things are progressing. Um, if we get, you know, to the year out and things still aren't where the mom wants them to be, we entertain all the options. Probably the most important thing I would say, though, is to be at the point of waning plus three months to see, you know, the grand scheme of where we're at. Mm -hmm. But it's not like we can't do symptom control in the interim by using, like I said, pessaries or exercises or sort of just some behavioral modifications. You know, there's a lot of things that we take for granted um, that can really give us uncomfortable symptoms in the bladder. For instance, drinking tons of caffeine. Um, eating a lot of chocolate, soda, uh, artificial sweeteners, things like that can really irritate the bladder and give a lot of incontinence and overactive bladder issues. Um, so just by sort of tailoring your behavior, you can have a lot of relief from those. Gotcha. And how about a woman who's not done childbearing yet? Would you consider surgery in a patient like that? Or what would, how would you counsel that woman? So definitely in the 20 years that I've been doing this, um, I've worked with physicians across this country of varying um, perspectives on operating on women before they're done with childbearing. And there are some physicians out there that do offer surgery, um, but what the research has shown us and what the physicians here at Women's Pelvic Medicine um, really adhere to the most current evidence showing that it really, you know, if we're going to be, de be doing some restorative and reparative process, if you have another baby come through there, it could really just mess up the whole thing in the first place again. So we really want to wait until childbearing is done. But that doesn't mean you have to suffer. You know, we can do a lot of symptom management um, that can give you a lot of relief so you can live comfortably and normally until you're done having babies. And I know that you mentioned, you know, kind of the most common group of women that tends to present and subsequently get surgery are postmenopausal. What are some of the surgeries that you would offer at that point? 
So um, for prolapse, there are two different types of surgical routes to take. Um, there are surgeries that preserve the vagina to be open, and then there are surgeries that actually close the vagina, not completely, um, but they create a septum, sort of like a, in the middle of your nose, like a septum in the middle of the vagina um, that makes it very difficult to have vaginal intercourse. So there's definitely different types of surgery, and depending on the patient's um, prolapse, the physician's, you know, assessment of it and what would lead to the best outcome for that person is how you really treat and choose your surgical approach. So in addition to Kegels, um, which you described beautifully, mm -hmm. thank you. Um, what other pelvic floor therapies are helpful for women who are suffering from symptoms postpartum? So um, definitely being physically active naturally engages your core and it naturally engages your pelvic floor. Um, and that's just imperative to do in order to keep a healthy pelvic floor. More you know, sedentary lifestyles definitely are going to lead to less pelvic floor health. Um, yoga, Pilates, anything that really um, strengthens the core we found also helps with pelvic floor tone um, and are great to do to stay in shape and keep public floor health. Um, for a woman that's been referred to your clinic, mm -hmm. what should she expect when she comes? So um, women are usually referred to us from another healthcare provider, either a family practice doctor or an OBGYN, um, or sometimes even by self-referral. But when they come into our clinic, um, they are always initially evaluated and seen by one of our urogynecologists. And we really triage whether or not um, the situation, the woman needs to have surgery, or we're gonna do conservative methods first to see if that best improves her symptoms and her life. How that pans out uh, is about 15% goes straight to surgery, and the other 85% or so, really we implement conservative measures first to see if we can improve her quality of life um, without having to implement surgery. And that's all comers, not just postpartum right. patients. That's okay. all comers. Right, right, right. And especially if it's a postpartum mom or um, a woman of childbearing age, we really want to stay away from surgical intervention unless she's finished having, um, having children. For, for a woman that might be nervous to have an assessment like this, what would you say to her? Well, any sort of exam where you're going to be, you know, really having the most intimate parts of your body evaluating can be nerve-wracking for anyone. Um, but the most important thing is to know that we do this day in and day out, and we're specialists, and the amount of discomfort and embarrassment that has brought you here or brings any patient here, um, we are so familiar with and so good at improving. It is so sad that when we do have women come in, um, the majority of time when they fill out their paperwork, the first question is always, how long have you suffered from this? And I've seen 30 years, 15 years, 50 years. And it breaks my heart that it's there's so many very simple things to improve someone's life so much. Um, you really don't need to suffer. And really, you know, we're not saving lives here. This isn't like life or death surgeries or interventions, but it's really taking the quality of life um, just beyond what you can even imagine. If you think of it as children, one of our first um, modes of independence is potty training, like to have control of your, your toileting. And to take that away from a human being is really taking away like an autonomy and an independence that 
um, you really don't understand it until it's gone. So um, don't be afraid. Come in. Let us help you. It really could make such a big change in their life. That sounds like such valuable advice. What are some of the most common questions, especially from postpartum moms, that you get in your clinic? Um, Across the board, the most common question is, did I do this to myself? You know, did I, and I've heard it all, did I exercise too much when I was pregnant? Is this because I smoked a cigarette when I didn't know I was pregnant? Um, Is this because I gained 50 pounds because I love cheeseburgers when I was pregnant? (laughs) I mean, I've heard it all. And even women across the lifespan, you know, um, is this because I waited so long? Is this because I felt like I was a bad wife or a bad mother or, you know? Women are so good at blaming ourselves. (laughs) And actually it gives us any sort of healthcare situation I found as a nurse, it gives, um, it gives us a sense of control or it gives us a sense of um, like an experiential awareness when we can have a, a reason. And the reason um, as it pertains to pelvic organ prolapse, they're very limited. It's something that happens. It's a part of a woman's aging process, especially after having children. Um, and the reason really isn't important. It's what can we do now to help you move forward and live better. So there's actually very, very little you can do to prevent it other than the things I said, like, you know, chronic constipation, cough, obesity. Other than that, it is what it is. We're here to help and um, you don't need to put it off. Come in and let's get on with your life. Do you find for women that maybe aren't suffering from urinary incontinence uh, or fecal incontinence, Mm -hmm. but just have you know, sort of mild prolapse symptoms. Do you find that there is a role for just helping somebody adjust to their new normal a little bit? Definitely. Um, We have a lot of women who come in with um, sort of like a, a whole collection of symptoms, you know, whether it was the prolapse or urinary incontinence, whether they have pain with intercourse, heavy periods, dryness with intercourse, um, you know, a whole myriad of symptoms can happen in the pelvis. The pelvis is sort of like the intersection of the whole body where you have so many systems and you can have so many symptoms. Um, whenever someone comes in, the most important thing we need to do is delineate whether this is something dangerous to them. Is there a process going on that we need medical intervention? Um, but if it's a symptom control, um, there are lots of things we can do very easily to give them relief, especially with mild prolapse. Typically with mild prolapse, um, not a lot of women have any symptoms from it. A lot of times they'll look in a mirror and say, whoa, that wasn't what I expected to see or that didn't look like that two years ago. Um, and so they come in and say, is this a tumor? Am I, you know, is this going to pop? Am I going to get cancer? Like all these, is it, you know, scary stuff. Um, reassurance is probably one of the best things that we can offer that you didn't do anything to cause this. It's probably not going to get that much worse in your lifetime. Um, and usually we don't see them back after that. They're like, oh, off the hook. (laughs) Um, but actually physical, um, therapy has shown not to really improve prolapse that dramatically, but physical therapy itself really changes how, um, the nerves and muscles operate down below and it changes the sensations. So without doing anything drastic, we're just changing the sensations and that's really improving comfort that way. For women who are especially, you know, kind of getting used to their new bodies again at, at that six-week postpartum visit, and they're got, they've got the clearance to have intercourse again if they want to. How is intercourse impacted by prolapse? It's 
actually not interpacted at all. It's really, um, you know, the vagina is very stretchy tissue. That's how we can have a baby come through there. And there is no element of prolapse that is made unsafe by having intercourse. Um, lots of women that have a lot of prolapse have a lot of intercourse and it works out just fine. <laughs> Even some women who wear pessaries still have intercourse with them in place. So um, if there is an issue where you should not be having intercourse, your OBGYN will tell you at the six week postpartum checkup. Um, but really the majority of the time it's more hesitation out of fear, but not because of a rational real reason. Mm -hmm. I find often, especially if they're still breastfeeding, lots of water-based KY jellies, usually my Tons recommendation. Of it. Tons of it. It will feel different. It will, yeah. definitely. In fact, um, any sort of lubricant, a lot of women like to use olive oil or coconut mm. oil because it's not quite as tacky as the water-based lubricants. Um, but we really try to keep away from any of the petroleum-based ones. Um, they're not good to use with pessary, like mineral oil, baby oil, um, Vaseline, stuff like that. And um, they can cause a lot of skin irritation, the, the petroleum-based ones. So we've been talking about three different things here. We've been talking about pelvic floor prolapse, urinary incontinence, and then, you know, also if, if um, the rectum is involved, fecal incontinence. How do these three things interact or, you know, t kind of help us understand the three differences here? Excellent. Um, so it's all a very close-knit part of the body. Um, it's all the same tissue. It's all the same nerve routes. I explain it to patients. It's like the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker all on a little <laughs> boat. So really, the function of each one of those systems impacts the others. Um, so for instance, it's not surprising when a woman comes in with symptoms of urinary incontinence, and we realize that she also has a little bit of pelvic organ prolapse. Um, it's all a part of the same area. And so uh, statistically, there's an 80% chance that if you have a problem in one of these areas, you may have problems in others. Um, the beauty of it is when we fix the most dominant problem, it usually makes all the symptoms better. Um, so don't be afraid if you have you know, urinary incontinence and you think you might have something else, there's a good chance it's all in the same area and it's pretty related from a health care provider's perspective. Um, and really by fixing one, you really make a lot of it much better. What is urinary incontinence? How might a woman know that she has good experiencing question. it? Good question. Um, so there's a there's a few different types of urinary incontinence, and ultimately the overall definition would be that you have urine coming out of you when you didn't mentally let it happen. You know, back way back in the day when you're potty trained, really what we're teaching the child to do is to wait until it's socially acceptable to release their bladder because you get an M&M or a Skittle or whatever the reward is. Um, with pelvic floor prolapse, dysfunction, what have you, sometimes those signals between the brain and the bladder get a little mixed up. And so, so what some women will experience is that, you know, you're on your way to the toilet and you're going to start streaming out of you, or you're trying to rush to get there and you can't get your pants down soon enough before urine starts streaming out. That's one type of incontinence. Um, sometimes women can leak urine with exertion, like coughing, sneezing, picking up your baby, something like that. That's another type, it's called stress incontinence. Um, there's even some other ones that are other issues, but urge and stress are really the most dominant ones. Um, and really, if you have urine coming out of you when you didn't choose for it to, 
that is urinary incontinence and let's fix it. Let's work on it. Tell me about some of the good outcomes that you've seen, especially in women, you know, who really had a lot of symptoms initially postpartum. I could give you examples from patients I've seen today to patients I've seen for the last 20 years. Um, I love the dramatic effect of um, how much improving someone's continence or relieving their prolapse symptoms um, affect them and what comes out of their mouth. Um, You gave me my freedom back. I love that one, especially how it relates to urinary incontinence. Um, I saw a woman today who, she was about three months postpartum, and we fitted her with a pessary, and she came back so confident and excited. She had been able to exercise again, and she says, I feel almost like my normal me again, which that's a huge thing, having a baby, sort of, you know, jumping into motherhood at the moment of birth and trying to figure yourself out and your life out, having your body feel a little bit more normal is just, it's a great feeling. And the fact that she was able to exercise again and not feel the symptoms she was having of prolapse um, was fantastic. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thanks again so much for taking the time to talk today, Laura. I really appreciate it.